0: Okay, if we're going to recreate this old pic of us that mom posted, we've got to get the outfits right.
1: Well, for some reason, I can't find gauchos with a matching shrug anywhere.
0: Let me try on my Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. I just use the S Pen to circle the outfit in the post, and bam, five sites to buy it from
1: right here.
2: Shut up! How did you... You shut it. Mom's coming. Cute outfit. Get me one.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Circle it, find it. With the new Galaxy S24 Ultra and circle the search with Google. Upgrade now at Samsung.com. Internet connection required. Results may vary based on visuals.
2: Want to get smarter about investing? Then tune in to the Capital Ideas Podcast from Capital Group, home of American Funds Distributors, Inc., one of the world's leading asset managers. Learn from portfolio managers with decades of experience by listening to the Capital Ideas Podcast today.
0: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. It's very
1: difficult to keep the line
0: between the past and the
2: present. You believe that someone out of the past. And enter and take possession of a living being.
0: We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with...
2: Keith Phipps. And... Scott Tobias.
0: Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current release. This week, we've gotten locked into the studio, and wave after wave of faceless enemies are trying to get to us. But we're going to hold our ground and record this podcast no matter what just like John Wayne and Rio Bravo. Scott, you lost our group game of One Potato, Two Potato, so you are responsible for explaining what's going on this week.
2: I I think I lost because I don't know how One Potato, Two Potato actually is played. (laughs)
0: You're the only one in the room that doesn't know all the rules to One Potato, Two Potato.
2: Well, you know, we're all big fans of Jeremy Saunier and his 2014 breakout movie, Blue Ruin, so we are excited to see his follow-up, Green Room, coming to festivals and theaters. And as longtime John Carpenter fans, we were even more encouraged to see Saunier specifically Citing Carpenter's 1976 breakout assault on Precinct 13 as one of the major influences on the film. Watching the two movies close together, it's hard to miss the connections. Both feature an outnumbered and outgunned group of people barricaded in a small, remote space, figuring out how to either hold off waves of merciless attackers or make a break for it through enemy lines. Green Room centers on a traveling punk band holed up in a backwoods bar where a group of skinheads are trying to kill them to eliminate witnesses after a murder. An assault on Precinct 13, it's an allied group of cops and criminals in a shuttered police station under siege by L.A. gang members. In both cases, ingenuity and determination are the only way out of a bad situation, and only for the few who survive.
0: And in both cases, the directors use violence sparingly, but manage to find ways to make it shocking and intense, even to jaded audiences used to plenty of bloodshed in their exploitation features. On this edition of the Next Picture Show, we'll talk about the roots of Assault on Precinct 13, what it says about its era, and how it reflects some of John Carpenter's most recognizable signatures as a director. Then in the second half, we'll look at how Green Room translates Carpenter, translating Howard Hawks and John Wayne. Keith, Scott, I know we normally run this podcast like Chicken Night and Turkey, But this week, we're finally going to get it together. I just hope you brought more than the one gun apiece.
1: This is the police. Drop your weapons and place your hands above your heads.
2: On Saturday, six members of the gang known as Street Thunder were ambushed by the police. On Sunday, the warlords of Street Thunder swore a blood oath to avenge their dead. For the gang called Street Thunder, it is a day of vengeance. It's war in the streets. Oh, Jesus, come on. Come on, I'll give you my money, just don't hurt me. Please, please. It's terror in the night. It's the most shattering assault on a police station in history. Assault on Precinct 13. This is a siege. It's a goddamn siege.
1: You want to stay here and hold until somebody comes, Okay. We're in the middle of a city, inside a police station.
0: Back in 2014, Entertainment Weekly noticed a sudden rush of young filmmakers heavily inspired by John Carpenter. They asked him what he made of films like The Purge, The Guest, Cold in July, Stage Fright, Almost Human, and Blue Ruin, all made by directors citing him as a visual, narrative, or musical influence. His response was pure Carpenter. I love it, but I just wish they would send me money. It doesn't have to be much. Just a couple bucks. Carpenter's been a tremendously influential voice in low-budget and indie genre movies, maybe the most influential filmmaker in the field after Roger Corman himself. But while we're talking about Carpenter's pioneering use of cameras, the memorable music he composed himself, and the way he channeled the cynical macho of classic westerns into a new kind of swagger, we shouldn't write off that very practical, very Corman-friendly where's-the-money attitude. When Carpenter talks about Assault on Precinct 13 in particular, he's very aware of having consciously planned it as a commercial project to give himself a foothold in in the business. Coming off his debut film, the ultra-low-budget science fiction horror movie Dark Star, he secretly wanted to make a classic Western, but he knew he could never get the budget for a period piece. So when producers came to him offering deals, he offered them a stealth Western, a tribute to star-filled Howard Hawks movies like Rio Bravo, El Dorado, and Rio Lobo. His version just had a few differences. It could be shot primarily in and around a single set, with unknown actors and modern-day costumes, it could keep costs low, and it could be shot as a cheap and dirty exploitation film with plenty of blood to lure in that coveted drive-in audience. But Assault on Precinct 13 is still visibly indebted to Hawks, starting with the way the story is structured. Austin Stoker plays Ethan Bishop, an L.A. cop on his first day of work. He's assigned to a dilapidated remote station that's slated to be shut down. Then, an unfortunate coincidence brings in a prison transfer bus in need of assistance, just as a group of street gang members with a vendetta decide to take down the station and kill everyone remaining inside. Bishop has to join forces with a prisoner headed for death row, a multiple murderer named Napoleon Wilson, played by Darwin Jostin. In effect, he's the new sheriff in a remote border town, holding tightly to his principles in the face of insurmountable odds. And the attackers are treated just like the Native Americans in those old Westerns, as inscrutable savages with principles but no morality around slaughter. There's a lot more to the Western connection, and we'll get into that in the group discussion. But Assault on Precinct 13 has deep roots in exploitation cinema, too, probably most clearly seen in its cast. There's a principled black hero out of a black exploitation movie, a surprisingly tough secretary, played by Laurie Zimmer, who mows down mooks like a champ, and a swaggering killer as a sympathetic lead. So guys, why don't we talk about some of the elements that are coming together here to make this movie, which it feels like it's got its feet in a bunch of different eras at once.
1: Yeah, Tasha. I think I think singling out those two different sort of wells from which Carpenter is drawing is is a, a good way to start this conversation because I think the combination of them turns into something different too. I mean, it is you know all the classical Western elements, very much a '70s uh, exploitation film. But, you know, it's also kind of not quite like any other 70s exploitation film because of that Western, the Western elements where you kind of get this sort of lonely outpost in the middle of a city. And, and uh, uh, that's not something you're used to seeing, but it, it seems appropriate for this era of Los Angeles, uh, sort of the decline of, of neighborhoods, sort of the the institutional neglect that led to some of the things. I think it's I think it's interesting that... I won't get into politics a little more later, but I think it's interesting that it's a police station that's being shut down. And there's really nothing else close by. I mean, there's, you know... I don't know how interesting Carpenter is in direct commentary on this film, but it's kind of hard to avoid uh, a little bit of a, of a statement with that, too.
0: You know, I've listened to a lot of interviews with him about this film, and I've read a lot about him in this film, and he is refreshingly free of uh, at least... Uh, expressing himself about messages that he may have intended, if, yeah. if, well, I, if he did intend messages, he is not interested in talking about them. He is largely interested in talking about how he wanted to make a cheap buck and stay a director.
1: Yeah, and that's so much like Howard Hawks too, who was who would. There, there, are, there are a few directors as thematically rich as Howard Hawks, but but he would not engage with a, a, a critical discussion of his films at all. <laughs> you know, it's I think it's part of what makes these guys kind of interesting, albeit, albeit frustrating as as well. But I mean, you know, Carpenter may say he doesn't doesn't have interesting. Commentary. John Carpenter also made they live. You know, I mean, <laughs> Good point. Uh, if it's more subtext than text, I think I think there's some interesting stuff going on there.
2: It's interesting to me too the connection between the practical realities of making this movie and the thematic ambitions of the film, or what we might read as the thematic ambitions of the film. Because you know, you consider the situation. I mean, this is a precinct that's about to be shut down, uh, not not moved, but just abandoned. Uh, the police have ceded this territory. To the bad elements, and the practical reason for it is that you cannot have a full on assault on an urban police station, even with silencers if it 's in a regular you know, city neighborhood where people are going to call and hear hear gunshots and respond to a scene, uh, so it has to be isolated in that respect, but in doing that and isolating it, you get this i guess political or cultural commentary about whole neighborhoods being abandoned by the police, being just given up on and you know, literally and metaphorically, this area of town is not being heard, mm-hmm. um, which is a powerful metaphor. And I don't know, you know, it, it's, it's whether he came upon it accidentally or, or, or not. It, it really comes through powerfully in the film.
0: It almost seems like he came across it accidentally as like an idea. Like he wanted, he's, he is very specific about the fact that he wanted to make a Western. And in order to get that border of civilization, things have like civilization has not yet come to this part of town in a modern city he has to necessarily put it in a regressive situation where civilization is leaving this area of town and given that that's how some people in the the 70s to to judge from a lot of films felt about kind of the rise of the gangs and like where the police presence was were going at the time it seems like it was like a very trenchant uh metaphor for its time i mean he's it's like he 's saying we 're going backwards in time rather than forward, civilization is retreating rather than than moving, and one of the big themes that this movie shares with Green Room is in both cases you have people kind of saying this how can this happen in this day and age like we 're a civilized we're a civilized country this can 't happen here
1: and and yet i mean it, it it is also you know people were saying this a few years ago uh, with Ferguson I mean you know there it is sort of scary how quickly order can break down or how neighborhood can turn into a war zone if things go awry you know it, it is uh, you know it, it, is, it is prescient in that, in that respect as well not of course to liken protesters to the gang members of the Sodom Precinct 13 the point I'm making the point I'm making is more what an orderly situation can turn disorderly very easily so
0: you guys are both fans of this movie I, oh, yeah. it. I mean there are there's a little online commentary when we said that we were going to do it that to the effect of like this is the greatest movie ever made <laughs> like I'm assuming you don't think this is the greatest movie ever made but would you would you describe yourself like how do you think this fits into to carpenter's work is it do you consider it one of his best films
1: I think so i hadn't seen it in a while, and you know people always think carpenter with you know associate carpenter with horror films and this falls a little outside that although it's still very much in addition to being a western exploitation film it's very much a, a horror inspired film um you know in, in night of the living Dead specifically i think but uh yeah I mean it is you know the the economy i don't think you really get the full effect of, of Carpenter's uh, filmmaking skills when he has a little bit more money in some ways, but he does so much with what he's got here, and and it's it's sort of a tight economical thing, and the characters are so wonderfully written, uh, you know, just sort of just with a few lines of dialogue establishing who these people are and the relationship with each other, and and and. Uh, you know the great s- central relation. I mean, the tr- between the three central characters, all the relationships are, are all great. But I, I really love the Napoleon Wilson and Lee, uh, the characters played by Darwin Joston and Laurie Zimmer. The sort of unlikely romance that, that sparks between them, and and kind of pretty much runs its course inevitably over the course of the evening. But it's it's uh, nicely done. You know, I I just watched Only Angels Have Wings, the Howard Hawks film, and and you know that's sort of the uh, one of the great examples of of. of what Hawks does were these characters who can express their feelings in every way, except for actually saying how they feel. And there's just so much of that in this movie too, that I, I, you know, I think it's, yeah, I think it's a terrific movie.
2: I I love this film. This is one of my, you know, this is top three Carpenter for me. Um, I think anytime there's a drum tight 90 minute ish, genre film uh, with plenty of uh, craft and violence. I'm, I'm all on board um, and uh, Assault on Precinct 13 has that and it's just, every element of it is is much more sophisticated than you would expect for a movie at, at this budget level, you know, or even in this genre. I mean, just that the, the Widescreen cinematography, which which became a Carpenter hallmark from this film on. Yeah, everything, this is his first time Everything in, in two three two three five to one. Um, the score, which just has that, that wonderful sim- simplicity, but but gets you right from the start. It's so effective. He's so committed to making genre films and, and doing it with a sense of history. I mean, this is a uh, Assault on Precinct Thirteen is his real bravo. I think if you really want to narrow it down to to one film and to see. That material, the spirit of that material, transferred from, uh, translated from that period to, to a modern period, that uh, with with so much of the spirit of it surviving, you know, and being expressed through these characters, it's such a western. I mean, it is so strongly a western. The character Wilson, especially, I mean, that guy, that even the actor, just seems imported from, like he got in, a t- <laughs> like he stepped in a time machine and just you know, was transported to this into this movie. Uh He's so much a throwback character and uh, i also liked the, you know I, I think it's the toughness of it the, the the violence of it is is uh kind of shocking and very effective and exciting uh you know I, it establishes it of course early on with i think one of the more notorious acts of violence ever committed in a movie right yeah, you with,
0: still don't see that kind of thing in movies today you
2: know, a little girl with an ice cream cone getting shot yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, it's her fault for you know she had a perfectly good vanilla ice cream. Uh, <laughs> she wanted vanilla twist and came back. Oh, it's, uh, it's partly on her. No, why must you also, always it's...
0: blame the victims? The, the poor ice cream victims. No,
1: I, that, I felt, that's I felt a moment. I love people. that moment. I, I think he's. I think. I think Carpenter may have kind of said he regrets it a little bit, but you know, you might think you know what kind of movie you're watching, but at that point, you realize you don't know what kind of yeah. movie you're watching. this, this things. A, these things don't happen.
2: You're right. That is the moment that says anything is possible in this film because they have he has shown you something uh truly unexpected and, and shocking that, that films just don't go to those places, even exploitation films. So that that part of it is good. And then you actually have other moments of violence in the film that are just flat out entertaining. There's a whole there's like probably what a a five or ten minute action sequence where they where most of the shooting happens where really just one gang member after another keeps climbing through the window and getting shot with a rifle. It's not a move that works very well for them, but it, uh, other than ex- helping, uh, uh, you know, I guess, uh, dwindle their ammunition supply, but man, it's exciting to watch, right? You
0: know, you know what other movie has a really shockingly horrible death of a child and implication of death of more children?
2: What's
1: that
0: Halloween 3 season of the witch by one John Carpenter? <laughs> well, well no, he, he didn't
1: he, direct that. Tommy Lee Wallace had directed it, um, yeah, you know. but I mean, that's it's the story is just so the story is Carpenter and somebody else, though yeah Nigel uh, Nigel Neil. Neal
2: what's well, that movie is a whole fascinating bit of history in itself oh yeah
1: and uh,
0: I mean we, we wrote about that one pretty extensively at the dissolve because it's it's such a fascinating artifact and because it goes to places that other films don't go both in terms of, of the horror and just in terms of f- following up a couple of like very prominently uh, well received movies with something very different and very ambitious and that's part of how I think of Carpenter is he has his roots in these very specific influences but he's willing to do do other things with them you know he's willing to go out on a limb and, and try new things and then he's a little surprised sometimes when people don't come along with him which is really weird because he identifies himself as a cynic mm-hmm. i i Saw this actually really interesting interview that seemed to be with it was unidentified. It's just on YouTube, and it seemed to be with a French television station, where he talks about how he's just the world's biggest cynic, and he says that characters like Jack Burton in Big Trouble in Little China, and uh, Nada, and They Live, and Snake Plissken in Escape from New York, and Napoleon Wilson here are all basically a combination of his cynicism and like the the straightforward like fast charging live loop. Uh, attitude of this kid he knew in high school like all of those characters he seems as the same character and then he goes on and on about his cynicism do you guys see this as a cynical movie
1: I don't getting a, bit, a little bit more big picture I don't see him as a cynical filmmaker or maker I don't see his films as cynical I don't see this one as cynical I think it's cynical about institutions I think it's pessimistic but I think there's a real spark of humanity in the way characters bond, characters come together, you know, the way they sort of work together toward a common goal, uh, overcome differences. You know, I think all that's in there. I don't, I don't, I don't think of that as cynical. Um, the cynics you cite, like, yeah, I mean, I think Pliskin is is Snake Pliskin is a cynic. I think Jack Burton is kind of a buffoon. Ultimately, <laughs> I think it's part of what appeal of that movie is like it kind of sends up that attitude. I don't know. I don't think it's as simple as as, as he's making it out to be.
2: Yeah. I mean, maybe you could look at the broader world of these films as as being drawn in a a cynical way, but he has a lot of faith in his, his characters and that specific character type that you talked about that Wilson in this movie represents most strongly the carpenter hero always irreverent um you know fiercely individualistic men but uh, you know very good with the one liners uh but they're all but when called upon they're also noble and courageous and you know and good hearted and so i think that that spirit animates his films you know probably certainly i think more than than cynical uh, cynicism i don't think i don't feel like i don't if there's a sourness to his work i i don't usually see it. It's there occasionally. Um, if you see a film like, you know, I guess vampires might be, you might say is a pretty sour <laughs> yeah, film. Yeah, that's, that's rough. Um, but, uh, but not here. I, I don't think. Uh, Assault on Precinct 13 has a wonderful, has a great spirit to it and in uh, real heroes. And um, if he's, whether he's cynical or not, his films don't necessarily re- reflect that, at least wholly.
0: Yeah, I I wonder if he's identifying himself as making cynical films because they take place in such dark worlds. But I think you're exactly right. I think Jack Burton in particular just seems like like yeah, he's a buffoon, but he's like he's gung ho. He's determined to make a difference. He's kind of like a super dialed up version of Bishop here. You know, he's he's trying to make a difference. He believes in what he's doing, and he he doesn't doubt for a minute that he can make a difference. And so it's important to try. And that's like. The opposite of cynicism, as far as i 'm concerned
2: yeah i mean it's a great he's a great character you know and I think in this film, you know the notions of sort of justice and moral codes i mean, that, that that's essential bedrock material for this movie i mean the easiest course of action for Bishop and the others is to give up the man who'd rushed into the station for help because you know goodness knows they they 'd stand to lose fewer lives by doing so but bishop you know he says out loud you know this that if a citizen comes to into the police station for help it's their obligation to defend that person uh you know no matter how many losses they wind up sustaining um in doing so you know and and and, and then you it gets you go further down into the cast uh for wilson and the other prisoner uh named wells you know they join the fight out of an instinct for self-preservation but they don't take the opportunity to free themselves from police custody. At least, at least Wilson do, doesn't. They stay, they stay and fight, and they maintain. You know, Wilson again, particularly um, builds a, up a trust uh, with bishop for with bishop who's on the other side of the, the law and um they, they fight together and there's kind of a you know a, a sort, sort of honor in that three three four
1: five three six three seven three more eight ten nine eleven. gets my ass and go to heaven Why y-o-u spelled you i told you i'd lose god we're gonna do it again hey hey there wasn't time why come she's out of it all right if i can do it with one arm still no sign of them let's get moving you want me to show you where it is I'll take him down. You stay up here. It's right next to the furnace. You can't miss it. Nobody gonna wish me luck? Good, Good luck. luck. Look at that. Two cops wishing me luck. I'm doomed.
0: You, you seem to be implying that they could have, like, shut down that whole thing by giving them the little girl's father. Do you think that's true? Like, do you think that's implied?
2: He I think so. the film yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean that's that's what that's they're the only after. That's the
1: reason PlayStation, they're not. They don't
2: care about the police. Yeah. They don't care really? about the police. They just care about the guy who came in because you know to re- refresh our listeners' memories if they uh I don't know if they've seen the film recently or not at all. Um uh, the little girl who shot uh, her father, you know, gets a gun and and drives after Uh, the men responsible and shoots one of them and one of them is one of the four main members of this gang and uh, they come running after him and so he and he rushes into the police station for uh, shelter and then that is what what um, triggers this this massive response um, from the gang to try to get this guy and anybody else who anybody who's trying to give him cover.
0: Really, and that's how you interpret it too.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think there's any um, uh, res- you know reluctance to attack the police on the part of them. But yeah, I think that's what what incites the that's the inciting moment of the film. Yeah. Otherwise, oh, there's, no, there's
2: no interest in what, what interest would there be in in attacking a, a shuttered or near shuttered police station.
0: Okay, I'm fascinated by that. I had in my notes that we really needed to talk about the plot because the the gang members here really don't explain what they're doing. Like they don't explain their motives, they don't explain their reasons. They
1: don't have a line of dialogue, do they? That's
0: a good question.
1: I don't know that they do.
0: No. no they've got the they've got their their weird blood ceremony right. and then they they come forward and throw the blood on the ground and they've got the banner which we don't ever get to see what the banner says, do we?
2: No. I think we're just told what it means.
0: Yeah, so... Which
2: is that they're all doomed. (laughs) There's a lot
0: of... There's a lot of the space for interpretation there. To me, it seemed like... I mean, we open with the police gunning down a bunch of gang members. Mm-hmm. And then we see those four very – each one of them from a different ethnicity, mm-hmm. uh, men sitting in a room together, cutting themselves open and, and bleeding into the bowl. To me, that was, I presumed, four different gangs, possibly from the Warriors, despite the fact that they're on the wrong coast, I know. But mm-hmm. I mean, come on. They're just very distinctive types, banding together and, and going out to do something against the police as revenge.
1: Yeah, OK. That's an interesting point. I don't I'm know. not saying
0: that you're wrong. Wrong. I'm no, saying I don't it's, know if it's specifically... fascinating to me that it's open enough that it could be interpreted. Yeah, no,
1: I think and I think that's in there too. I don't know if this specific attack would have, ha- have happened when it did, but I think it's just uh just um, spin off that a little bit. Is there kind of an intriguing perspective shift there in the first scene where you had these faceless police gunning down gang members or we don't even know for sure they are gang members, it it seems likely to then the portrayal of the gang members as being the sort of not faceless, but the silent, uh, you know, not quite fully human ones, too. I, th- I think there's a nifty little bit of equation going on there between uh, how violence turns into violence uh, there. Again, I don't know. I don't know how explicit the commentary is, but but uh I, I think it's definitely in the, in the mix there.
0: I mean, I think that that's another thing that that Green Room and. Uh, assaults on Precinct 13 both have very strongly in common and Jeremy Saunier's films in general is that it's all about the cycle of violence. Mm -hmm. One killing necessarily leads to another killing which necessarily leads to another killing and it's you're not done until there are huge heaps of corpses and uh, you know whoever gets to walk out of the smoke gets to walk out of the smoke. So
2: your feeling was like this was just a pure this is whatever this was revenge for whatever it is that happened in the opening bit. It wasn't related to the, the father running in there and Needing shelter
0: i didn't i didn't see it that way no i when the when the gang members are driving around with a gun um and like targeting person after person it seemed to me that there was like a distinct how can we make the most impact like how can we like this uh, this rummy sitting and drinking like in the middle of the day like that's not going to be enough killing that person um random like woman with her groceries that's going to be enough let's gun down an adorable child—that'll get the police back, and then like to me, the assault on the the precinct was about uh, like a strike back against the police, you know, for what they'd done. But again, because there's no dialogue, because there's no explanation, I feel like that's really left up to in interpretation.
1: Interesting.
2: Well, I, I and I thought I felt like those that the targeting was just targeting at that point. I I didn't think there was an interest in shooting those specific random people on the, on the street. I think there was obviously an interest in shooting the ice cream man, um, and but I think it was almost just pure out it just it's psychopathy. It's not. I don't think there was any. Uh, Um, motive beyond that
0: Um, man that ice cream man has really good something is up instincts and really bad run away because something is up (laughs) instincts
2: yeah well again i'm we're gonna have to go back to blaming this this ice cream wanting little girl um who who uh without who you know he would have just driven uh driven on and she's like he's like uh, he didn't,
0: you know. she didn't stop but him though no,
2: no, no, it's his fault for keeping the music going on his ice cream t- truck <laughs> uh, thus alerting her to the ice cream so one thing that i i, I want to, one little thing that i really like this film that i want to note is the father of this girl because he's kind of a jerk Right. (laughs) When the film opens, he's kind of a jerk. He's not he's not. I think the, the obvious choice would make would be to make him just an earnest, caring father who has lost his child. But I don't think that's that's not the way that it's framed. Um, there's something going on. He's he's stop- He he's he's agitated. He has to make this phone call, which is how she wanders off and and uh, gets the ice cream to begin with. He's not.
1: Yeah, but they're driving there to convince a. I, I think they're made to come live with them and get out of this horrible neighborhood. So he's there for he's there for a. Uh, worthy cause.
0: Oh, but I don't think that that's a, I don't think it's about getting her out of the neighborhood. I think he has a thing for her. Yeah, I think maybe. that's why he's pushing it off on the little girl to yeah. try to make the pitch.
1: Yeah, maybe. All Which
0: right. doesn't make him a bad person. I just, I'm saying, I don't get the sense that he's acting out of altruism. No,
2: he's right. it's not great. You know, he's not He's not quite the, war, the warm father-knows-best type that uh, you might expect in a situation like this. Um, so, the, the, you know, there's a little bit of darkness even in that uh, portrayal.
0: Well, so I find it hard to imagine a father's nose best guy like immediately like scooping up a gun and running to to murder the guy that just murdered his kid. <laughs> was Leaving remi- the
1: kid there on the sidewalk. Yeah, the, she's got reminded-
0: a coat over his face. I'm
2: reminded oh, of the last house on the left, though, because you know, last house on the left. You know, you, I think you have to. Parents you, you you consider perfectly ordinary, and um, they're driven to yeah. driven to violence uh, by by the death of, of their of a child. So that kind of that plays for me. Parents don't like seeing their kids getting killed.
0: Well, let's talk about the exploitation roots here. That's we haven't gotten into that quite as much as, as the Western side. And I'm I'm really weak on my 70s exploitation film so I don't know as much about the roots of where this film is coming from. But I mean, this does feel like in concept very much a drive-in movie of the time you know killer gangs come after innocent people a whole mm. lot of people are killed how does it fit into the exploitation genre for you guys
1: i think it doesn't fit ne- it lives besides like sort of the exploitation films i think pretty pretty easily which tend to be less directed with a little less restraint than this, but it's definitely sort of the city is out of control. Uh, What can a sane person do to survive, but go a little insane uh, him or herself? I'm thinking specifically of the Pam Greer films. Uh, You know, I think there's definitely uh, that kind of kind of element to it as well. I I think, you know, if you're in the seventies and you come into this, you're going to not get quite what you're expected, but probably walk away pretty satisfied anyway.
2: I think that kind of it almost goes back to the conversation we had uh, about psycho, which is that it does take a certain form of a of a low brow low rent type of a movie, but the craft is just so undeniable uh, i mean that 's what makes it stand out because it because it's it's such a confident, you know, beautiful piece of filmmaking that, that um, you know, visually and thematically rich, uh, but, but also tremendously uh, satisfying as a tight, very hard-hitting thriller.
0: Yeah, it is. It's a little surprising to me. Like, I was very surprised when I realized that the protagonist of this film was going to be a black cop because it doesn't feel like a black exploitation portrayal and it doesn't feel like a black exploitation script but it's still I mean that was pretty rare for the era and one of the things that really struck me after after watching this I watched the 2005 remake and one of the first things that struck me was they kept the character names but they flipped the races so suddenly the uh, the criminal uh, the noble criminal is the black guy and the heroic cop is the white guy and it it kind of made me gag. I mean, and just as a, as a basic premise, like that's the first thing that you would think to do.
1: Yeah, I think on the other hand, you could see it as as a, a conscious attempt to diffuse some of the potential racial politics of it as well by, by having a black hero and by also making you, it. A, a, you're talking about
2: about this film about yeah about the, the yeah, Carpenter. about, about,
1: the, about sure. the, the seventy about the Carpenter film. Mm-hmm. Uh, you sort of like can can sidestep some some potentially um, ugly racial politics if you have a black hero um, and you're not not you know I, I think it's a great character and very well played by Austin Stoker, but it, it, it's not necessarily. Get out of jail free card, but it certainly certainly helps um, avoid any protests of racism. As does having a very uh, a rainbow coalition of yeah, kids right, yeah. here as well. Yeah. Um, Although
0: you note that the the worst of them, like the scariest, the most inhuman, and the one that you spend the most time with, is the white dude. Sure, sure. Like the Aryan-looking which which white to life. dude. Yeah. Um,
2: <laughs> uh, I think that in both cases, both in terms of the you know diversity of the heroes and the gang members, that those those definitely seem like deliberate calculations on Carpenter's part, and that that separates it from plenty of exploitation films of the era, which are not mm-hmm. nearly so careful.
1: Death Wish in that
2: regard. Oh yeah, Death Wish is. I mean, those Death Wish movies are all about just mowing down horrible minorities. There's no there's no subtlety to it at all, and I think I think Car- Carpenter is. Conscious of that and and um, placed to it really quite effectively. Uh, I th- I think the film is well cast. It, it was surpri- it's surprising to me that none of these actors ever really. This wasn't like a like a uh, dazed confused moment where where they all uh, broke out and became huge stars. Uh, I don't think. I, do we see any of these people
1: uh, some of them kept working Charles Cyphers was in a bunch who was a lower in the cast but he played a, it was in a bunch of uh, John Carpenter films oh yeah but definitely. Uh, Austin Stoker and Darwin Jostin both kept working they were actually in another movie together called Time Walker which you might have seen on Mystery Science Theater 3000 oh no Laurie <laughs> uh, Zimmer kind of disappeared um, yeah she's, she's the great, one that surprised too. me yeah. she
0: like I thought she was a little rough early on mm-hmm. like a little too presentational and fakey but as soon as she gets tough she's a great character yeah, really yeah. good
2: character. I love I really do love the chemistry between her and Wilson. Uh because I, I the film really just kinda goes up to the edge with it and and not doesn't really go over it. It is and isn't a romantic subplot. Mm-hmm. It's not you know, there's no smooching involved, but but it's just it's it's sexy, right? Mm-hmm. I mean yeah, and, and and it really makes the uh end of the film in, in particular um super satisfying.
0: Yeah, that little moment where Napoleon tells her that he has a code and that he can't walk away from a a man who can't run with him or and then he just leaves it on the table. And what he obviously means is or a woman. Uh, or a woman who can't protect herself or a beautiful woman or a woman I have a thing for like any of those things could be true and expressing it would be like reducing her like reducing the role that she's had up until this point and it might be saying it might be admitting to a weakness that he doesn't want to admit to so the moment just hangs between them and i I love the way that's the way that's acted the way that's written
1: just a quick update from imdb austin stoker is still acting occasionally you know there's a lot of time between between roles but he's still out there doing stuff
0: yeah he seemed to mostly have a career in tv it looked Mm -hmm. like right
2: somebody should do an oral history of this film huh? I'll pitch it to you, Keith. Okay. (laughs) So do you, Um,
0: what do you think is the motivation for Carpenter behind like, By telling the story the way he did. Watching the remake, one of the things that really struck me was there is so much explaining. The characters explain their own psychology. They explain each other's psychology. There's like a lady psychiatrist that's uh, treating the white cop played by Ethan Hawke for PTSD because of something that happened to him earlier in the film. And she – like. There's a lengthy speech where she's like, here's what your issues are. Here's is your psychology. And he's like, no, this is my psychology. And she's like, no, let me explain. And so much explaining. There's explaining why they're, each one of them is there. They're explaining like what the uh, criminal's motivation is. There's explaining of his code. And it just goes on and on and on. And then you go back and look at this and it's like nobody explains why they're in this film or what they're doing.
2: They just do it. That's a great thing about – I mean I think they're really great genre of filmmakers and this was walter hill in that period too if you want to talk about somebody working at the top of their game in genre of films in the 70s character is really expressed through action you know and through the things through the things that they do more than the things that they say uh you know carpenter is very good in this film about you know dropping really sharp funny one-liners and you know there's a lot of really good dialogue in the film but you sense that he dials it back as much as Possible, in order to have the action, the action itself uh, define the characters, you know, rather than what they might say about themselves or what other people might say about them.
1: Yeah, and 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 I don't I don't know if it's a difference between eras or just the the filmmakers behind it. But I I I haven't seen the remake, so I can't I can't speak to it. But I, I find. The careful dispensing of small bits of information pretty effective here.
0: Scott, you kind of touched on the music, like the use of widescreen and the Carpenter doing his own music mm-hmm. and the spareness of it, which are all kind of Carpenter, like recognizable Carpenter motifs. What else about this film says Carpenter to you? Like how do you know when you're watching a John Carpenter film?
1: few directors use, use shadows and darkness as well um there's there's a lot of um he's not afraid of negative space in a really interesting way and i i think that you, you see that here as well he'd really really hit his stride once he hooked up with dean dean Koundy, the the cinematographer and, and things like uh, uh Halloween and a bunch of films after that but like uh, you know few people do like sort of empty street light lit streets at night uh n- as well as john carpenter um, that's that's a signature that I like.
2: Yeah, I think we've mentioned a lot of them. I mean the 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 use of a widescreen frame um, and uh, his ability to to populate it effectively, as Keith Keith says. Uh, and I I think the the deployment of the score. You know, again, just as I was talking about the dialogue being spare. I mean, the score is spare too. I mean, you get a really. I think, memorable riff. It's as simple as can be. Um, and he wrote it himself. I think maybe if you... I always think, like, if, if a composer is hired to do a score, they feel obligated to add a lot of bells and whistles to it in a way that, you know, Carpenter really doesn't. Carpenter just kind of lays a baseline for a movie. And, and this happens, too, with, with... I think about it, somebody like Shane Carruth, when he does his own scores. It's like, we he, you know, he does... It just needs to be a very simple element, you know, a, a kind of a, a betting, I guess, uh, to build the film upon. And, um, you know, this is, this is, this isn't, you know, Halloween memorable, but this is a good score and, uh, kind of keeps you going through through it. And the other stuff, I mean, I think he, he likes, you know, I mean, this is his most Western-like film. Him, mean, he's a, he's a real master of genre in general. And he f- seizes the opportunity to both, you know, pay homage to, uh, filmmakers like, Howard Hawks, but also to kind of tweak the genre a little bit, you know, bringing bringing in different types of characters, bringing an African American hero, bringing a woman into the fight, and and then and then you get that that great Carpenter hero, the the the, the, the Wilson character, you know, the the irreverent, heroic, but uh, you know he's not not much of a talker, kind of a John Wayne type, um, and that's somebody he returns to again would return to again and again. So I think this is kind of a formative film for for him in so many regards. I mean, so many of the elements you associate. With Carpenter, you wouldn't necessarily associate them, see them in, in Dark Star, which, as Keith will, will tell you, is as much a Dan O'Bannon film as is a Carpenter film. But this is fully a Carpenter film, and you can I think you really can trace a lot of his earlier his later films back to this one, and, and really see see this is the first true full
1: Carpenter movie. A couple other things too. I think I think the editing is really economical. I mean, every cut matters, and he, he edited this one himself under a different name, which is I don't know if it's the only one he did that for or not. But uh, um, I guess the other thing Thing, um, that you kind of don't get with this film, though, is sort of the John Carpenter stock players and sort of the re, the return to the same actors again and again. Kurt Russell, he and Kurt Russell especially had a had a long fruitful relationship that uh, I think they brought out the best in each other as well.
2: I like too that instinct just to get things going right away. I mean, you you start with a big action sequence, you know, you're just you're thrown right into it. You know, it's just, there's really I, I think a, a a sense of an audience you know watching this movie and needing to be you know gripped and entertained by it at all times although
0: that's just also i mean that's the exploitation roots like you there's there's a lot of of slowed downtime in this movie and part of it is one of the other things carpenter does really well which is establishing space like there's the yeah. whole sequence where mm-hmm. the cop comes out of the station and looks up and down the street and he's just establishing sight lines basically you know so you know when the indians start coming where they're coming from they're Coming over the horizon. Here's where all of the horizons are, and it, it actually made me laugh while I was watching it, like laugh out loud because I was like, I I see what you're doing here, and it's really clever because you're putting the camera in the eyes of someone who's actually in this situation and is doing this for a reason, but you're also doing it for us. It's just a really yeah, you nice could little... describe.
2: You could we could probably each have a piece of paper right now and and map out what the space looks like. You know where where the where the offices are, where the where the front desk is, where the Uh, cells are and what the outside of the place looks like where the parking lot is. I mean, all of that is laid out so beautifully. And I think it's just one of those seemingly simple things that that not a lot of filmmakers do well, which is just, just, you know, set the the table and, and give people a sense of space.
0: Speaking of seemingly simple things that most filmmakers don't do, what is up with the game of one potato?
2: I don't know. <laughs> why why <laughs> don't know do these played. two
0: theoretically hardened like prison vets? I love, how, I love vets? that it's
2: played though. Yeah. But
0: but they both know the rules. They have like... a lot of
1: time in prison. I think I think you got you got to <laughs> pass the time however you can, and <laughs> everything, spent, everything's like, a competition. Yeah, you know? it's you know it's it's a game that requires no equipment whatsoever, and I guess I don't know how it works, but apparently there's some sort of competitive element to it. So.
2: It was the Rochambeau of its time.
0: Was it though? I, mean, I, I don't I I have Rochambeau no idea. I love I love that they play time. it
2: though because it's, it's it seems very funny for uh, tough guys to be playing one potato, two potato.
0: I mean, I love that they they treat it so aggressively. I mean, Wells in particular goes into that game of one potato like he's he's so yeah. angry. And, yeah. oh, and there's, there's a lot at stake, and there's a little profanity in it, which is not the one potato I grew up with. You know, this is the hardened prison version. of I'd have one gone potato. with
2: best two out of three. I wanted to see more. I wanted to see more of that happen. You only <laughs> just get the one.
0: Wells is uh, Wells is our cynic. Wells is our carpenter uh, stand in because he knows he's going to lose and he's angry about it already. But you <laughs> he's, he's still got to play the game, man.
2: Let clear something up for me. If he when he does go out there, is he he's intending to do what? Is he, going, is he he's going to alert? He's going to get in the car? I a think he's car. going
1: to escape to Mexico, but as a, a he tells Wilson that he'll, he'll do the courtesy of letting people know they need help on exactly. his way. Out
2: okay, of I think so. I think that's true as well. Cause I was hesitant to kind of talk about, to include him when I was talking about these prisoners acting in an honorable way, but uh, I think he would probably say that that's a pretty good compromise. Yeah. Uh, at that point, he will have earned his freedom.
0: I mean, one of the things that, it, like if you when i when i read that this was basically carpenter described this as his take on rio bravo like i haven't seen rio bravo um and i read a whoa, whoa, like whoa. i know i know right. i read a one line description of it somewhere and i was like okay so they end up uh hold up in the prison holding off bad guys and then i read a detailed description of the plot i'm like oh no, there's, there's not really a lot specifically drawn from one to the other. It's, it's all about attitude. It's all about machismo. It's all about having a code of honor. It's all about fighting off the uncivilized elements that are taking down your town. But in the end, one of the things that most connected for me was just the sense that Rio Bravo has a rich and vibrant cast full of people with their own agendas. It's not as simple as... John Wayne's going to clean up the West. It's all about all of the different elements and how they work together, and I think that's one of the influences I see most here.
2: Because they have to, they have to work to, you know, for their own. They they they're under siege, and so and so that completely changes. The relationship that they had before, which, which was on people on opposite sides of the law from much from different backgrounds with people with no, nothing in common, um, you know, that they suddenly do have something in common, which is that, which is that they're outmanned and, and outgunned and they have to work together in order to hold the fort. That, that, that is the essential connection between those two movies, I think.
1: Yeah. And I, think, I but I think you are right. And then the attitude is, is they are very much united by attitude. Oh, wait a minute. You got to see Rio Bravo. Sorry. yeah. I gotta back up here. That's great. that's that's so good. Yeah. yeah. Uh uh, but you know, I, I think the you know the such such companion pieces. I mean and Hawks is just all, all over um this film and other Carpenter films in general. Uh, I know we're winding down here, but I just want to throw in did anyone else notice the the shot that Jonathan Demi borrowed for Silence of the Lambs in this one? No. Where where Wilson is standing alone in his cell uh, kind of just looking very peaceful as the camera, you know, moves along. I mean, It is it is borrowed pretty heavily from from Silence of the Lambs for that shot when you first when uh, Clarice oh, first I sees. Think about that. Uh, wow, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty nice. much it. It's it's a nice little it's either either wonderful thievery or a nice bit of homage, whichever you want to look at it. I, I choose the latter.
2: Uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. I did. Th- I actually did think of Silence of the Lambs during that sh- that shot. Interesting
0: well I'll, uh, I'll tell you this and then perhaps we can close um, I didn't notice that but one thing that I did notice uh, as far as nice little homages go is uh, Laurie Zimmer's character Lee mm-hmm. uh, named for Lee Brackett who wrote Rio Bravo and Rio Lobo and uh, wow. El Dorado
1: and, and many other that films including great. That's uh, good trivia. The Big Sleep and, and uh, Empire Strikes Back
0: yeah and that's I, I mean you know you can uh, Debbie doesn't, doesn't put uh, like a little subtitle at the bottom of the screen that says I took This here's where I took this from, but uh, like Carpenter, Carpenter taking his uh, his names from Lee Brackett. Like you can't you can't miss that. It doesn't need an asterisk. It doesn't need a subtitle. You know what you're dealing with when you're dealing with Carpenter. Totally. Well, we're gonna get a lot more into some of the things we've been talking about here in terms of civilizing the West and. Banding together with unlikely uh, allies, and uh, the use of violence, and a lot more other things in our the next half when we get into Green Room. But for now, normally this is where we would put our feedback section. But for scheduling reasons, we're actually taping this episode in the same day that our previous episode hits the internet, and we're not expecting people's feedback to time travel to us. So we're just going to move past feedback this week and hope to catch up next week. In the meantime, make sure to follow us on Facebook where we're posting your letters. Uh, and as always, we appreciate when our listeners. Listeners Share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at seven seven three two three four nine seven three zero or email us at comments at nextpicture show. net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it at facebookcom nextpicture show for open discussion. And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In the second half, coming later this week, we'll add green room to the conversation and see how different the siege engine becomes when you actually get to see what the bad guys want and hear what they're up to while the heroes plan their next move. You'll also get to hear this. It's
2: a pretty nuanced portrait of dogs. Look for that
0: later this week. Or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. You can keep up with new episodes at nextpictureshow.net or at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. Follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. And until then, don't waste your time arguing with a confident man. By the way, does anybody here have a smoke?